It's uh, my joy this morning to partner with uh, Jason Palmer uh, in this message. Uh, Jason uh, serves at the University of Mary Hardin Baylor in Belton. He is the Dean of Spiritual Life and the campus chaplain there. Uh, he and his wife Christy and their four sons have been members of our church for a little over three years now. So Jason, it's great to be able to share in this together. Jason told me about uh, when uh, Kurt Sparkman contacted him to invite him to become a part of this series. And Kurt told him there's going to be, each message is going to be shared by an older pastor and a younger pastor. And he said, my immediate thought was, which one am I? Am I the older or the younger? But he said it was cleared up when the name David Griffin was mentioned. <laughs> He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was the younger. So it's exciting to be able to share in this uh, time this morning. So we celebrate Advent. Now, I have to admit to you that Advent is relatively new for me. In the place I grew up, in the time I grew up, in the churches I grew up in, we did not celebrate Advent. That was something those liturgical churches did, and we didn't want to be like them, so we didn't celebrate Advent. But things have changed, and I've come to appreciate the Advent season and to learn that the word Advent means coming, and we celebrate in Advent the first coming of Jesus Christ, and we look forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So two Sundays ago, we celebrated the hope that we have in Jesus. Last week, we celebrated the peace we have in the coming of Jesus. Today, we celebrate the love that we have in the coming of Jesus. In our passage, if you'll turn to Isaiah chapter 61, in just a moment, I'll be reading the first three verses of Isaiah 61, and it's a prophecy Isaiah prophesied the coming of the one whose work would demonstrate God's love and salvation to us. So I read the first three verses of Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair and they will be called oaks of righteousness or righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify him. You know, if we're going to experience the wonder of the Messiah today as described in Isaiah 61, it is key that we understand the context in which it was written. The Israelites' exile in Babylon was over, and they knew firsthand the suffering that accompanies captivity. They knew firsthand what it felt like to have no status, no social standing whatsoever, and consequently, they also knew all too well what it felt like to be the recipients of systematic oppression and abuse. 
but they also remembered the great hope that they had for a dramatic reversal of fortune. They remembered what it was like to yearn for a rightly ordered peace, and they remembered what it was like to dream of a day when they would once again feel like an object of affection rather than an object of scorn. Prophetic leaders like Isaiah spoke into this angst in their hearts by casting a vision for a day when the captives would be exalted, when the nations that had oppressed them would assist them in going back to their homelands, when the, when the priestly role would be restored, when cities would be rebuilt, the economy would flourish again, and peace and righteousness would be the order of the day. Everything would change when Messiah comes. The work of the one to come would bring salvation and hope, the kind of transformation that only God's perfect love can bring about. The first three verses of Isaiah 61 assign six tasks to the anointed one that he would fulfill. Take a moment with me for a moment and look at these tasks. The first one is that he would bring good news to the poor. Verse 1 begins by saying, the spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. What an amazing beginning. In the Hebrew, the Ruach Adonai Yahweh, the spirit of my Lord God Yahweh is anointing me, setting me apart for something unique that only the Messiah could do. He is set apart. He is other and he is coming ultimately to proclaim good news. Have you ever longed for some good news? Had a season in your life where you're like, I could really use some good news right now. When I think about how your whole body yearns for good news, I think back to coming home from military deployment, particularly from combat. For the better part of a year, you have longed for this day when you will see in the distance your family and you will see them, and I don't know, yeah, put that picture up there. It's one of my favorite pictures that was ever taken of my family. The kids are much younger back then. We only had three. We've got a fourth now. But that was the idea when I first saw Christy and the boys coming home from Iraq, and that was the look on their faces, and that's what I felt like on the inside. That's what it feels like, and you felt it likely too, when you yearn for a day when everything will be set right again. The emotion is palpable. But the good news that the Messiah brings is so much richer than any earthly reunion because he addresses those urgent physical and spiritual needs that surround us. And the Israelites, who had endured decades-long captivity, they would have been acutely aware of the desperate need for good news in their individual lives and corporately as well. Praise God that he showed great love to us Amen. by sending the Messiah to us to give us good news that we couldn't give ourselves. The second task, in addition to proclaiming good news to the poor, is that he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. See, the Messiah would come with full awareness and full compassion regarding the hurts of his people. He knew the most difficult of details. He knew the complete scope of their injuries, and he would take the time necessary to apply the bandages that those people needed in order to have their deepest hurts resolved. 
when we look at this passage, it says that he would heal the brokenhearted. If I were to look at David today and say, David, I love you with all my heart. David would understand what I meant. He might look at me funny, but he wouldn't understand what I meant. In the Hebrew mind, you would say, I love you with all of my lave, all of my liver, all of my innermost parts of who makes me who I am. And so if I said to David, I love you with all my liver, it I'd, wouldn't quite resonate I'd to the wonder Hebrew. about you. It would. Yeah. <laughs> and so in this passage, it says that the one who has suffered the fracturing or brokenness of his innermost person that only the Lord is able to put that back together. When you have shards of pottery laying on the ground, only God can put that back together. And so put this picture up. Japanese art includes a form called kintsugi. It takes uh, a, a special artist able to use lacquer and gold in order to be able to take a beautiful piece of pottery that has been fractured and put it back together. And the thing I love about this is that often that piece of pottery after it's been put back together is more valuable it is more useful and it is more precious than it ever was in its original form when i think about god healing the brokenhearted healing those whose laves whose innermost parts have been shattered by life's events god takes those pieces and the beautiful craftsman that he is is able to put those back together in the most precious of ways. I praise God that he is still in the business of knowing our deepest hurts. He knew theirs back all those years ago, and he knows ours likewise Amen. today. Amen. The third task is that he proclaims liberty and freedom. Verse 1 ends by saying, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. In my experience, freedom tastes the sweetest when you remember the frustration of what it means to experience captivity. From October 2012 to December 2013, I served as the Army's Special Operations Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape SEER school chaplain. And in going through that training and providing pastoral care to the students and staff that were going through and overseeing that training, I saw firsthand that it is amazing how quickly sleep deprivation, hunger, and exposure can reveal to us the fragility of our bodies and can really bring some awareness to us about the limitations of our physical capabilities that we didn't know before. It was an amazing observation to see because these are not just anyone who's chosen to go to this school. Most of my classmates were the most mentally and physically capable from our culture and they were there and they were coming face to face with the limits of their bodies. And I can remember there's a day in my own life in the training and in the lives of many others that there comes a moment at a moment when they least expect it, when in an instant they go from being captive to liberated. And the way they respond, seeing many iterations of this, is one of the most beautiful things I remember about my 25 years in uniform because many weep. The most burliest of men hug one another. They find someone who's shown the smallest act of kindness and they go and they express great thankfulness because when they were desperate and in need, someone gave them some small vestige of liberation and freedom that they could not otherwise give themselves. It's beautiful to watch how the human heart craves to be unshackled and craves to be free. 
you know, at that moment of liberation in our lives and in the lives of those in a military sense and in any, any captivity sense, hearts become trembling. Many are ultimately expressing the deepest angst of their hearts, and it's because they ultimately desire to be set free. The Israelites remembered what it was like to be captive, both physically and spiritually bound, and Isaiah said one was coming who would ultimately give them liberty. The Messiah came to give us that freedom because he loved us. And I wonder if we in this space today can remember the first time in our lives where we really realized that we were captive to sin and desperately needing a freedom that we could not offer ourselves. Well, I want to respond to that question from, for myself. But before I do that, we need to look at some additional tasks of the Messiah. The fourth task uh, we find in verse 2 which says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance. The Messiah would come to demonstrate God's love by proclaiming favor and vengeance. The year of Yahweh's favor uh, refers to the year of Jubilee which was to take place in Israel every 50th year. In the year of Jubilee, all debts were canceled, all land was returned to the original owner, all the slaves were set free, and everybody was given a fresh new beginning. So this prophecy in Isaiah reminded Israel that even though they were under uh, God's judgment and discipline because of their sin, God had plans to favor them and to bless them with a new beginning through this anointed one who was to come. The day of our God's vengeance, that reference reminded Israel that a part of God's favor was his vengeance against their enemies. Justice would be done. The pain and suffering of Israel would be avenged. When we trust Jesus Christ, now that the Messiah has come, when we trust him as our Lord and Savior, we enter a year of spiritual jubilee in which our sin debt is paid in full. We are set free from bondage to sin and we live in the riches of God's favor and grace. But we're also reminded that those who don't trust Jesus will experience exactly the opposite. 2 Thessalonians says, At the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven, he will take vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. We're reminded when we think of the Messiah that only those who trust him are spared God's vengeance on sin and evil. Jesus, the Messiah, does bring God's favor, but he also brings vengeance unless we're trusting him as Lord and Savior. We find the fifth task of the one to come in the last part of verse 2 where we simply read that he came to comfort those who mourn that the Messiah would demonstrate God's love by comforting all who mourn. The promise of comfort was music 
uh, to Israel's ears. They were mourning all that they had lost when they chose to rebel against God, to sin against him, and when they brought God's judgment on themselves. But this promise said, your mourning is not going to last forever. One is coming who will bring comfort and encouragement to you in your mourning. When Jesus came, he said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Through faith in Jesus, we experience his blessing and his comfort and his encouragement and his presence in the midst of our suffering, no matter how great our loss, no matter how deep our mourning and our grief. And we look forward to a time when it's going to get even better and our mourning will end and we will never ever again grieve loss. Revelation 21 says... God himself will be with him, with them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. We find the sixth task of the one to come in verse 3, where we read, to provide for those who mourn in Zion. To give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. See, this one to come would demonstrate God's love by providing joy and righteousness. The Messiah would provide uh, for Israel not just comfort in their mourning, but actual removal of their mourning and replacement with joy. Common expressions of grief and mourning in Isaiah's day and time were to take off headdresses, to rip clothes, put on sackcloth, to throw dust or ashes or both on one's head. But Isaiah promised the Messiah would replace Grief with joy, like the joy of receiving a beautiful crown or being clothed in splendid clothing or being anointed with festive oil. For us as followers of the Messiah, one of the ways he turns our mourning into joy is by using us to comfort others with the comfort we ourselves receive from God in the midst of our suffering and mourning. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 says, The Father of mercies and the God of all comfort comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Praise God that there's purpose in our mourning and in our grief and, our, and in our suffering. So we've looked at six tasks of the one to come, of the Messiah, the anointed one. And the end goal of all these tasks is expressed at the very end um, of verse 3, where we read, and they will be called oaks of, uh, be called righteous trees. Uh, many translations say oaks of righteousness. And they will be called oaks of righteousness planted by the Lord to glorify him. It's interesting that earlier in Isaiah, in chapter 1, verse 30, 
Israel, uh, it refers to the fact that Israel had become like an oak whose leaves had withered, maybe like oak wilt, because of their sin and unrighteousness. But the Messiah, according to this promise, would restore Israel and make them a thriving oak of righteousness for the purpose of bringing glory and honor to God. Here in Central Texas, we're blessed to enjoy majestic oak trees. In fact, hundreds of them are right here on our campus. And if you haven't noticed, we're seeing more and more of those oaks because of the work of Danny Marriott and Jimmy Paul and their team. We're able to enjoy uh, more and more of those oaks. It occurred to me as I thought about that, that I believe God wants FBG to be known throughout Williamson County for our oaks. Now, I'm not talking about our live oak trees. I'm talking about each of us becoming oaks of righteousness to bring glory to God. Oh, my prayer is that God would be glorified throughout our county as people observe in us Jesus Christ and see his presence in our lives. And as they hear stories of how he is at work making us oaks of righteousness, bringing healing in our brokenness, freedom in our captivity, showing us his favor and comfort in our mourning. Jason, you earlier spoke about the captivity of Israel as background for this passage. And I'm sure there's no way I could ever identify with what they went through in that captivity. You also talked about captivity that you experienced in the, I can't say that long name you said, but in the uh, Army Special Operations School. And, and there's really no way I can identify with that unless maybe a small taste of it when I went on the Asia mission trip and was on two 17 and a half hour flights confined to this little airplane seat. But other than that, I can't really identify with what you're talking about. I could identify with the captivity, though, that you mentioned in the question you asked earlier, captivity to sin. Uh, you said, do you remember the first time you realized you were captive to sin and desperately needed a freedom that you can't provide for yourself? And the answer to that question for me is yes. I distinctly remember that time. It was many years ago. I was taking a class, and I had the opportunity to do a genogram. And I was instructed to list the names of three generations of my family on this chart that looks somewhat like a family tree. So I started by listing my names and my siblings and cousins and my generation. And above that, I listed my parents and my aunts and uncles and their generation. And then above that, I listed my grandparents. Then my assignment was to look at those three generations and identify behavior patterns that were being passed from one generation to another, whether functional or dysfunctional behavior patterns. So I began to do that and I found myself listing some pretty ugly sin patterns beside the names of different ones of my family members in all three generations in extended family. Unfortunately, I was listing things like drug addiction, alcohol addiction, love and relationship addiction, food addiction, 
work addiction, abuse, violence, arrest, incarceration, divorce. Then I came to my name. And I realized that I needed to write something by my name that I had never associated with myself before. A way that I would be identifying myself in a way I had never been identified before. So I took my pen and I wrote beside my name, Pornography Addiction. It was a very, very difficult moment for me and something I'm not proud of now. I'm not mentioning that because I'm proud of it. I was overwhelmed with shame. And that shame begins to push in even as I mention that to you. But the reason I mention that is because it was that moment of clarity, that moment of realizing my captivity, it was that moment of realizing the sin patterns that were holding me that allowed me to begin to experience the healing and the freedom that we're talking about in this passage of Scripture. Today I'm happy to report that what Isaiah prophesied is in the process of becoming true in me through faith in Christ. I am in a battle, and all of us are in a battle with sin that won't end until we're in heaven with the Lord. But because of Jesus Christ, I'm living in freedom from captivity to sin. My brokenness is being healed. I'm experiencing joy instead of that overwhelming shame that was, had been a part of my life. And my prayer is that God would somehow work in me to make me an oak of righteousness for one purpose, and that is to bring glory to his name. Amen. You know, Isaiah, the book, ascribes several attributes to the Messiah who is the only one able to help us grow into those oaks of righteousness that was mentioned. One of those is that he would be the Holy One of Israel. He is God Most High. He is other and set apart. He is also Savior, and his offer of salvation demands a response. If we're to realize what Alan said from this pulpit last week about being able to cling to the Lord, to be able to cling to those aspects of justice and righteousness that only he can bring, then we must respond to his offer of salvation. He also has the attribute of being redeemer. If you remember that year of Jubilee, the 50th year when all things would be restored to their rightful owner, I love the definition of redemption that means that one takes that property to include persons who are no longer held by their original owner and sets that right again to make sure that the intended original owner has all that is supposed to be had by that person again. And God wants that. He wants to own us in our fullness again. And fourth, he also is the supreme and only ruler. There is none like him. His garments are vengeance and fury, but they are also righteousness, justice, and salvation. He is God alone, and there is no other. Luke chapter 4 describes Jesus, now fully grown, returning to his hometown and entering the synagogue on Sabbath, as was his custom. In that day, Jewish worship practices often included the beginning with prayer, the reading of the law or prophets, and then a season of teaching that would follow that. 
the scripture describes Christ being handed the scroll of Isaiah, whether that was an honor that was extended to him as a visiting rabbi or whether it was just his turn, he took that scripture and it says in Luke 4 that he found his place to this portion of Isaiah that we've referenced earlier and he began to read. And Luke 4 says, the Lord spoke this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. I am so thankful that when my Lord returned to his hometown and began to disclose his messianic identity in a public way, he did not begin with an ornate defense of the law. He did not begin by admonishing sinners who were present, both of which he was qualified to do. Instead, he began his messianic revelation by telling them something very different, telling them good news. Praise God that he leads off with the good news that only he can bring to us. And no one in that room was confused about what had just been spoken. They knew that he had just quoted from one of the messianic claims in Isaiah, one of the salvation speeches called often the Messiah's Jubilee. They were so frustrated by the claims that he had just made that they kicked him out of town, took him to a cliff, were about to throw him over the edge, but that's when Jesus slipped through the crowd. Jesus is the anointed one. He is Messiah. He is holy. He is Savior. He is Redeemer. He alone is Lord. Jesus uniquely fulfilled every Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah to come. And he ushered in the time in the era or the time in which we now live, the year of God's favor. And we are able to experience God's favor as those uh, before Christ were not able to experience. But yet what we're experiencing now of God's favor is only a foretaste of what is to come. It's, it's going to get better when Christ returns. We live between the already and the not yet. Christ has already come, but he has not come in his fullness to establish his righteousness. So it's exciting that we're able to live in this time of favor. Yet in this era of favor, we struggle with captivity and we need deliverance. And maybe Jason, you could speak to that. How have you seen the Messiah work in your family bringing deliverance? You know, the weight of financial debt on my family growing up was a pressing force. Both of my parents had been raised under the influence of the gospel. Uh, both of them had come to faith as young adults, but being a farming family, it only took a few seasons of struggle in the harvest for us to be put in a very difficult financial situation. But God, however, was doing a transformative work in the lives of my parents who were just beginning their walks with the Lord. And I just uh, am amazed at how God 
taught them through mentors and teaching about how to honor the Lord with their finances, which were in a mess at that time. He gave them both the will and endurance to work as hard to get out of debt as I've ever observed anyone do so. But more than that, he also, in the process of reducing debt, gave them a heart to be generous because they still acutely remembered what it was like to be under the fullest weight of debt that they had experienced and they wanted every step of the journey back to financial freedom to be one where to the extent that they could that they were a blessing to others and I remember one day and it wasn't that long ago that my father wrote the last check to the bank no longer did the bank hold our farm as collateral anymore. And there were no crowds cheering that day, no, no roar from the crowd like at my favorite football game or something. But with quiet simplicity, he wrote that last check. And my sister and I were taking notes at how you walk in faithfulness to God's call. Because my parents didn't want to be defined by anything other than God's love in this journey back to financial freedom. They didn't want to be defined by their financial mistakes or, or, or misfortunes of the past. They wanted God to get glory out of this return to financial freedom. And I praise God that now at 80 and 70 years respectively, my, my father and mother are enjoying a measure of financial freedom that they never experienced. And I praise God for his liberation Amen. from captivity. Oh, it's beautiful. So, you know, I don't want anything to stand in the way of me becoming the person that God wants me to be in my family and in this community. But I wonder, David, if we might take a moment and identify some sin struggles that prevent us from becoming the oaks of righteousness and how we might identify some of those struggles. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think uh, a, a first step is for us to simply remember how easy it is, it is for us to be blind to our sin patterns that we probably all have sin patterns in our lives that we're not even aware of because our hearts are deceptive and we're full of pride and we don't really want to see the truth and reality about ourselves think second it's helpful to pray in trying to identify sin patterns it's helpful to pray and ask the Lord to help us see ourselves as he sees us a couple of my favorite uh, passages for that favorite verses are Psalm 139, the last two verses that say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And then third, I think in the context of prayer like that, it's helpful to ask ourselves some questions uh, that might help us identify sin patterns like, what thoughts, attitudes, and behaviors are dishonoring to the Lord and preventing me from becoming the oak of righteousness that he wants me to be? What am I hiding? Uh, what I, am I working really hard to keep others from knowing? What am I afraid to admit to myself and others? And, and what do I keep denying? Another question might be, what is it that others keep telling me that I need to change, but I think they're wrong, so I don't want to listen to them. They might just be right. Another question is, what do I keep doing that hurts me and hurts those who are important to me and brings difficulty in their lives? In what ways am I attempting to live life on my own and in my own strength and ability, apart from total dependence on Christ alone. Mm -hmm. 
How am I isolating in relationships? In what ways am I doing that? Cutting myself off from those who might have the opportunity to speak truth. I've asked myself this question before. If my life over the last year, including all my thoughts and motives and actions, if they were to be made into a movie to be shown on these two big screens over here on Sunday morning, what would I rush to the producer to ask him to delete? What scenes would I want him to delete? Those scenes, if we identified them, might just be the sin patterns that God wants to work in us to overcome so that we can be the oaks of righteousness he wants us to be. And I wonder what next steps we might take if we're going to become those oaks of righteousness for God's glory here in Williamson County. What might some of those look like? Well, just some thoughts, uh, beginning uh, with Ephesians 4 to start with, where the Apostle Paul said, take off your former way of life. Take off the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires and put on the new self created in righteousness and purity of the truth. There are some next steps that we can take in that process of putting off the old self and putting on the new self. It's a work that God does, but he asks us to take next steps so that we're in a position where he can bring about that transformation to make us oaks of righteousness. And maybe a first step is simply to admit our own powerlessness to change ourselves. That there's nothing we can do to make ourselves oaks of righteousness. Another next step might be to commit ourselves fully to Jesus Christ. To turn our lives and wills over to him. But since only Jesus can change us and make us hopes of righteousness, we need him to do in us what only he can do. Um, another next step might be to openly and honestly deal with the sin in our lives. And, and we talked about that, but to identify sin, to name it, to list it. Not only our sin against others, but other sins against us because those hold us captive too. To confess that sin and brokenness to the Lord and trusted believers and to leave that sin behind, to repent, to turn from it and leave it behind in the strength of Christ. Another next step might be following Christ daily by engaging in his word and personal prayer and open, honest Christian fellowship and community, uh, enlisting some of those, that community inviting them into our lives to know what our struggles are so they can encourage us and hold us accountable. And then most important of all, to be sharing our story of brokenness and joy with those who need Christ. Amen. Share those stories. That brings us to a time, or moving toward a time of response and maybe a couple of questions that have popped into my mind as I think about this time. The first one simply being, have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and received the salvation and love that he sent the Messiah to bring you? Like Israel, all of us have sinned in word and deed. And like Israel, 
We are in need of the salvation that only Jesus can give. So this Messiah came. He suffered death on the cross to procure salvation for you and me. He has been restored to life, resurrected from the grave, exalted to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And one day he's coming again to consummate the kingdom of God. So it's oh so important that we are ready for that second return of Christ if he comes before we die. And if he doesn't, that we're ready for that day that our life on this earth ends. So the best way to prepare for that is to embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. If you're here this morning, you're thinking about that decision, struggling with that decision, have questions about that decision of trusting Jesus. In a few moments as we sing, there'll be pastors here at the front, and we invite you to come and join us here so that we can talk about that. Just one other question. If you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you know you belong to him. What next step? Has the Holy Spirit spoken to you today that you need to take? What next step will you determine in your heart and as we may participate in this time of response and commitment, what next step will you ask the Lord to give you the ability to take by his grace and his strength? As all of us as our church family take our next steps of being obedient to Christ, he will continue that process of making us oaks of righteousness known throughout this county, not for our live oaks, but for the members of our church who are being redeemed every day by Jesus Christ.